Hey everyone, your support of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen has been amazing. Your support on Patreon has helped us grow the podcast. I'm planning some multi-guest episodes that would not be possible without your support. As support grows, I hope to improve the rewards to listeners and expand the reach of the podcast. You can help by contributing as little as $1 a month. Support today by visiting patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. This is Matt Payne, and this is f-stop, collaborate, and listen. You're listening to episode 58 with Ben Horn. We covered some really cool topics this week. Um, You're going to love it, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Ben is an 8x10 film shooter, and uh, we talked a lot about that and the limitations and advantages of shooting 8x10. We also talked a lot about storytelling and landscape photography, um, which I really, really appreciated that part of the conversation. Um, And we talked a lot about the conundrum of sharing photo locations. And we also covered the topic of Ben's yearly photo box sets. I think you guys are going to love it. Enjoy. Well, uh, thanks, Ben Horn, for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much. Dude, it's awesome. I've I've listened to, I think, pretty much every single episode in... uh... And I had uh, I was listening to a lot of them when I was on my my spring trip. So you're keeping me busy when I was uh, sitting there waiting for some good light. Oh, cool, man! Uh, uh, any particular episodes that uh, that you enjoyed more than others? You know, they're all pretty awesome. I like that you have a variety of guests with all kinds of different takes on things, and uh, so it's it's been uh, it's I don't know it's just uh, it's you've got a good group of people, so I've I've enjoyed it. Cool. Well, you can. Uh, Add yourself to the list, I guess. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, right on, dude. So, um, you know, I first uh, heard about you um, from Nick Page's podcast. And uh, when I listened to that episode, I was like, oh, he sounds like someone that needs to come on to uh, F-Stop, collaborate, and listen. So I'm glad you could make it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And Nick's a, Nick's a cool guy. He's got a he got awesome voice, talented photographer, and he's got a lot of, a lot of cool things going. So it was, it was fun to be part of that podcast. Yeah, those are two things that he has that I don't. So that's, that's <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's let's kick it off and uh, tell tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, like who you are, where you live, how you, and talk a little bit about like how you got into this uh, crazy world of uh, landscape photography. So I I live in San Diego and uh, kind of born and raised here, and uh, I've always kind of enjoyed the outdoors. Went on like family camping trips as a kid and stuff like that, and. It was actually the first time I went to, to Zion National Park, which is like where I go like uh, every year in the fall and uh, other times as well. But um, I've always kind of been interested in the outdoors. Um, I kind of got into photography in high school, didn't really take it seriously, but it's just kind of cool and fun. Um, so shooting some you know black and white film, making prints in the dark room, stuff like that. And that's when digital photography was just coming out. So I got my, uh, my first digital camera when in like my senior year of high school, it was a uh, 0.3 megapixels and it <laughs> shot on floppy disks. Yes. And it was $700. So, yeah. So, uh, I kind of rode the, uh, digital wave of uh, photography and ended up getting into a Canon SLR system and worked my way up. But, um, I was kind of more into just kind of like playing with the cameras and working with that. I didn't really uh, take it too seriously from a landscape photography standpoint until uh, I went on a trip over to um, like Utah and Arizona and stuff like that. I think it's 2009. And uh, and I went over there with my wife because we're going to a, a friend's wedding over in Arizona. 
and uh, just kind of hit up some of the key spots on the way back. And I remember walking into Michael Fatali's gallery mm. and uh, seeing his his images there. I'm just going like, wow, you know, these are these are awesome prints because he he shoots eight by ten film, and uh, they're cibachrome prints, so they're all like made in the darkroom. And I wasn't necessarily interested in shooting large format at the time, but I just remember seeing his prints and just thinking how how awesome they were. And, uh, and then a couple of years later, I kind of ended up getting into large format film photography. And uh, I think that the reason for that was I, I sensed that there was something kind of missing in my own work. And um, a friend told me to just, you know, get a four by five camera, you know, shoot film. And um, I think what, what she was saying was, you know, work with a camera like that. It'll slow you down. It'll make you think about what you're doing. But what I heard was, hey, I can scan it at like a million megapixels. I get all this technical <laughs> stuff, you know. So I, I, I didn't really think about it from the standpoint of, hey, it's going to make you a better photographer. I just heard it like, oh, cool, I can make huge prints, you know, like like Michael Fatali was doing. Um, so I, I went on a sort of a definitive trip. It was in 2009. And uh, I brought both my digital setup. And it was like, it, it was the, the Canon 1DS3, which is crazy, like stupidly expensive camera. And, uh, you know, all the great lenses and stuff. And then I had this, uh, this used uh, Toyo 4x5 camera and uh, two lenses for it. And my, my goal was to take both cameras on a hike to the wave in, uh, in northern Arizona. And it was a Super Bowl Sunday. It was a little chilly. And I was going to shoot the same thing on digital and then film. And uh, so I set up a shot on, uh, on film, took it. It just was so kind of easy to do and just it really just kind of worked really well with uh with sort of my mentality of working and then i was going to shoot the same thing on digital but i'm like i just i just don't feel like doing it and i just put the the camera away and just ended up using um, the large format view camera for the rest of the trip and it was uh i think the day after that that i shot what then became like my first i guess a modern portfolio shot. It was over in uh, Buckskin Gulch, the uh, confluence of Wire Pass and, and Buckskin Gulch. It was kind of a cool bush I photographed over there in reflected light. And it's still one of my favorite uh, portfolio shots. So nice. Um, yeah, ever since then, I've just been shooting large format and loving it. So uh, I've noticed that um, a lot of your photography is in the desert southwest here in the United States. Mm-hmm. What is it about that that area of the country that you love shooting in and, and why do you choose to shoot there predominantly versus um, other parts of the country or the world? Uh, well, part of it's proximity. Um, I mean, in San Diego, I'm about a eight-hour drive away from southern Utah. Um, and then uh, about 12 hours or so gets me a little further kind of into Utah. And with the type of photography I do, I, I have an eight by 10 camera now. It's a lot of just stuff to lug around. So it would not be fun flying with the gear. It's really best to work out of my truck, but it also kind of fits my, my way of working. But I, I, I really enjoy returning to the same locations again and again, not to shoot the same thing, but just to kind of keep further exploring further and further. Hmm. Um, like I'll, I'll backpack into a Canyon, I'll photograph it for a few days. And the next year I'll go to another Canyon nearby that I learned about on my previous trip. So it's just such a huge, vast area. And there's so many areas off the beaten path where rather than chasing icons somewhere, you can just, you know, find your own subjects and have a place to yourself, which is, which is awesome. 
Yeah, that's awesome, man. Because uh, that's that's one of the things I, I like to do myself. Is um, I do a lot of shooting here in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado, and you know, there's I feel like there's so much territory that I have just barely scratched the surface on, and 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 I think you're right. Like the more time you spend in an area, you become more and more intimate with it, and um, I think it starts to, I think it starts to show through in the work that you produce. Oh yeah. You start to notice kind of the, the smaller details, um, which is one of the things I really enjoy shooting. I, I don't shoot a lot of the grand landscape stuff. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. honestly, it's really kind of stressful to shoot that on large format. Cause if you have changing light and wind and all these other things going on, you have to, to meter the camera separately. And, um, it's so much easier to point the camera kind of at stuff at your feet, but it's kind of cool because it, it gives me sort of a sense of direction where, um, there's a lot of things I, I really just, it would be so hard to photograph that I can just kind of, you know, take those off the table. I don't even have to worry about those. And I just kind of focus on the things that I can shoot. Um, which is one of the things I really enjoy about just kind of going to a place that's a little off the beaten path and kind of spending time looking around and, and trying to find, basically kind of follow your curiosity and kind of find some cool subjects. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. You know, it's funny. I was actually on Nick Page's podcast as well, and we talked a lot about backpacking. And I shared about, um, you know, I actually recently went to Mirrorless because I wanted to lose weight in my mm-hmm. gear. <laughs> and yeah. and you kind of do the opposite. Like you have the heaviest gear possible on the world. Did does it, <laughs> does it ever uh, limit your ability to go to places that you really want to explore? Or? Well, I, I certainly would have a hard time going to some of the areas that you go to with the uh, high elevation. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure to a cer- certain degree, you're you're kind of used to some of that. But, uh, you know, here I am at living at sea level. But, right. Um, yeah. But like the areas I go to, um, it's mostly like hiking into some cool canyon somewhere and staying there for a few days. But I've actually been able to get my pack to be relatively decent given what I'm carrying. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, how many I, I pounds think, you got like without food and water? Oh, without food and water. Um, well, I, I know, I know the weight with food and water with food and water. I'm at about 50 pounds, but that's, oh, that's not bad. That's not bad for an eight by 10 camera. Yeah. No, dude, that's actually really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've, when I first started doing this, the first, uh, the first backpacking trip I went on, it was close to 90 pounds. It was <laughs> Dude, it I know. was crazy. It was when really I, crazy. When I first got into backpacking and uh, photography at the same time, I was up into like the 60s and 70s. So yeah, yeah I feel you, man. <laughs> That's just brutal. <laughs> yeah. And so I've just kind of gone through and made sacrifices. I mean, I just take, I don't take a 10, I just take a bivy. Mm, um, okay. I, I take instead of like a water purification filter, I just take the little tablets I drop in the in the water. Um, and, uh, the camera I'm using now, it's kind of crazy. I have two cameras I use. They're both eight by 10 cameras. One of them is a really expensive, really precise camera. Um, it's from Arca Swiss and that one it's precision based. It's awesome. Uh, it also, it weighs probably uh, 12, 13 pounds, which is actually considered not to be too bad for an eight by 10. Um, but then the other one I have, it's actually made out of plywood. It's like machined plywood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's a company in England that makes them and it weighs, uh, under five pounds, which is pretty darn good for, for an eight by 10. Um, so I, I carry that one along when I go backpacking and, uh, uh, how heavy are the, uh, are the lenses for a large format camera? 
So I'm kind of building up a second set of lenses um, just for backpacking. Um, my normal lens is a 300 millimeter f 5.6 and 5.6 is like a really fast aperture for an eight by 10 lens. Right. And 300 um, millimeters, like mid, mid zoom, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's not, and it's, it's not a long telephoto. Like, in yeah, the yeah. <laughs> it's, but you have the depth of field of if you're to stand there with a 300 millimeter lens and kind of like, you know, shoot a bunch of photos and stitch them together in a multi-row stitch. So you end up having a really crazy shallow depth of field. Um, but that lens, it is probably like a, maybe like a few pounds or so. I mean, it's, it's pretty heavy. Okay. Um, but then I have one just for backpacking. It's made by Fuji and it's half a pound. Nice. Uh, it's just a slower lens. So the, the ground glass on the back of the camera is a little, little dimmer, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's also a pretty sharp lens. Okay. Well, one of the things I was really hoping to talk to you about, um, was obviously more in depth about, uh, being an eight by 10 shooter and how that affects, uh, your workflow and things like that. I'm curious, like, obviously there's some limitations, um, of working with film. So how does, how do those limitations shape your workflow and your creativity? And how, how does that differ from those of us that shoot digital? Well, it's, there's, there's a lot of limitations when it comes to these cameras. Um, I mean, one of them is that you, you don't have a viewfinder. You can simply just like hold up and kind of look around and try to find a subject. So you have to kind of learn to identify a composition and a subject just with your eyes. Um, and as a result, I use a normal lens most of the time, uh, just because if I see something that looks pretty cool, I'll just kind of know right off the bat that, you know, I'll use my normal lens. I set up for this. There'll be absolutely no surprise when I set the camera up. Um, so it takes a bit of time to kind of get the camera out and, and get the lens on it and, and get everything all set up. Um, and so if I am shooting a scene where the light isn't, you know, well, if the light's already going off, it's looking really good. Um, it takes a little while to set up. Um, and so I kind of have a tendency just to kind of like not look at what's going on and just kind of like ignore it while I'm kind of trying to hurriedly set up the camera, um, like for <laughs> yeah, like grand landscapes and stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. Just kind of, just kind of whistling there, you know, <laughs> just like, ah, nothing's going on. Um, so yeah. So the limitations are you're, you're, it's kind of slow to set up. Uh, if there's any wind, uh, it's going to shake the camera. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, Patagonia would, would be pretty tough for me because I guess it's uh, pretty darn windy there. Um, but also other things like, um, if I want to take a picture before sunrise, it's really hard to see anything on the ground glass as far as composition or focus or anything. So what I've done in the past is I'd set up the camera, um, the day before, get the composition set. And then kind of cover it up, lock it down, and then come back the next morning. And then it's sitting there, you know, ready to go as far as the, the composition, the focus. Yeah. And hopefully the light cooperates. Right. Um, and so there's other things too, like um, uh, the depth of field is very limited. So there's certain things you just really can't shoot. Um, there is a, a scene I photographed on my spring backpacking trip, this kind of cool canyon with some reflected light. And uh, even though I stopped down quite a bit, I just you know, I, I couldn't get enough of it in focus, hmm. but with all these limitations, it's kind of cool because it helps to steer me into kind of a certain direction. Um, since I use my normal lens a lot, uh, the images typically have kind of a calm feeling as opposed to like an ultra wide angle, which has kind of a, a different perspective to it. Um, since I have to shoot when in, the wind is really calm, that also kind of, 
um, gives out. So it's interesting because it really helps to, I I think in in some ways, like if people look at the photos I've shot, they might be able to identify that some of them are my photos just because of the common kind of look of them, which really is kind of defined by the camera that I'm using. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting the way that that all, that all kind of works out. So, uh, how long does it take you to set up that system? Uh, if I'm really just kind of trying to work fast, I could probably get it set up and at least looking through the viewfinder in uh, like five minutes or so. But, um, but then you have to use the light meter and kind of meter the scene. So, um, from setting it up to shooting a photo, probably about the quickest I can go is probably about 10 minutes or so, give or take, which is, which is not bad. But in a perfect world, I'd like to have about an hour to kind of sit there, um, kind of figure out what I want to do for the composition because, you know, I might be down to like one last sheet of film or something like that where you got to make it count. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about like that aspect of it because, you know, us in digital, you know, we have virtually unlimited amount of photos we can take. So like, how do you, how can you be as specific as you can with your exposures? And like, how does, how does your mind, how does that change your mindset when you know you only have like, like between 10 and 20 total shots for your whole trip? It, in a way it's kind of liberating. I, I don't know. It, it might seem really weird because, you know, with a digital camera, you can throw a big card in there. Or you could take thousands and thousands of pictures, but there's something kind of nice about making every single shot count um, because it really kind of slows you down a little bit, makes you kind of think about everything. And one of the things I've learned is that since I kind of started doing all the large format stuff, um, I have very, very few regrets when it comes to composition where I'll, you know, I get back home, I get the film developed, I scan it, I look at it. It's very, very seldom that I will look at a photo and say, oh, if only my camera was like two inches to the right or two inches to the left because I didn't notice some sort of thing kind of going on in the foreground or the background. Um, so it really has helped me, I think, to, to see the subject better, um, which is kind of nice. And, and now actually, you know, if I go on a trip and I have, you know, the ability to take, um, well, like on the backpacking trip I just went on, I had the ability to take uh, 10, uh, 10 photos. So I had five film holders with me. And I probably could have done the trip with about half that. Mm. Um, so it, it's just weird. It's kind of a different perspective, but in a way it's also kind of limiting, uh, kind of limiting, uh, kind of liberating because it, it gives you kind of a sense of direction, which is kind of nice. Yeah. I, I think it would be kind of cool because it, I think it would make you put a lot more effort and thought into every single shot that you took knowing that, you know, for one, it's a financial investment every time you click the shutter, but too it's also like you if you're out for three or four or five days like you know that you have like two or three shots a day yeah and and also um like when i went on the backpacking trip recently i had two different types of film i was using so you have to make those decisions in the field you know is this photo for this particular film or is this photo for this other film Um, because there's one film that does really well with uh, like high contrast scenes and then there's another film that does better with kind of lower contrast scenes. Yeah. Um, and so like when I went on the trip, I just took five sheets of one, five sheets of the other. And that balance was, was pretty ideal for what I was doing, but it just, it just kind of becomes normal after a while, which is, which is kind of nice. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not gonna lie. There's there's definitely something about film that really appeals to me. Um, I don't know. In every endeavor I've ever done, I've always like purposely made it hard on myself. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know why I do that. Like, I'll shoot primes or, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, back in the when I was in high school, I played a lot of uh, Magic: The Gathering, which is like a card game mm-hmm. and i would only play with like black bordered cards because they're hard they're rarer so you know that must make it harder for me to get the good cards so i don't know i think there's something cool about like making it harder on yourself because it forces you to make really intentional decisions yeah in some ways i think it actually makes it kind of easier <laughs> right <on>. um <laughs> yeah because like if you show up at like some crazy scene and there's like so much stuff going on there's like a breaking storm and you know the light shooting out and stuff like i'll know right away like what i can and what i can't shoot so it kind of gives me that sense of direction and uh and and i don't really initially i kind of was worrying somewhat about the stuff i couldn't shoot um i remember there was a time in i was in death valley and there's like this really really awesome sunrise going on um, and I just hiked up to the top of a dune and just kind of sat there and, and enjoyed it because I knew that there was, there was no way I'd be able to set up my camera and find a subject. And rather than kind of stressing out about that, I just learned to enjoy the moment, yeah. which, which ended up being something that I can like, remember that, you know, that exact, uh, that exact moment kind of in my mind. Um, I don't think a photo ever really would have done it any justice. Well, I think that that's a good segue. So one of the topics I wanted to talk about was, storytelling uh with with Mm -hmm. landscape photography and i think obviously you know um that's something that i think that you value a lot as well and i think i'm interested to know like what what do you think the importance of storytelling is in landscape photography and and as a film shooter what does that how does that look differently if, if if at all well when i was first kind of um getting started with landscape photography. I was, well, I, I had kind of more of a graphic design background when I was in college. And uh, and I, I kind of knew I'd never really use the degree that I had, but I was always kind of looking for, you know, things that were visually interesting. And uh, back in 2009, I, I went on a trip. It was also to um, South Coyote Buttes. And there's all kinds of like crazy sandstone swirls and stuff. And I remember I was like, putting a lot of emphasis and trying to like take these cool abstract photos of the rocks and they were visually interesting, but they kind of felt kind of empty to me because it was just something just for the sake of being visually interesting. There wasn't any sort of story behind it. And so one of the things that I've, I've learned in the past, probably three or four years in particular is to uh, look for subjects that have a story to tell, because that is something that, you know, the viewer can kind of pick up on and kind of emotionally connect to the photo. And I, I find that trees in particular are really, really good for that because, um, you know, just the, you have this like really cool looking tree that's kind of a, living this tortured existence, but still thriving in these really harsh areas. And that's something that you can kind of relate to and kind of, you know, personify to some degree. Um, so I'm always kind of looking for that that lone tree, but um, there's there's been some really cool scenes I photographed that um, I, I never really get tired of seeing the photos, which is which I think says something because I, I 
you know, I'll take a photo that I just like, I hate it instantly. And I don't even <laughs> want to look at it anymore. That's why I don't have any photos on my own wall right now. Cause I like the thought of having to look at it every single day, but I've, I've had the same wallpaper on my, uh, my iPhone for quite a few years now. I don't, I don't get tired of looking at it. It's this photo in, uh, in Zion national park, kind of off in the East side, kind of off in some sidewash somewhere. And it's these cool, um, it's a vertical photo of these two pine trees and they're kind of like intertwined in this kind of really nice reflected light. And there's this little pine tree kind of off in the background. And there's this really cool sandstone kind of um, with all these cool lines at like a 45 degree angle. Um, and it looks like this family, like this mom and this like uh, dad kind of like embracing each other and like this little tree off in the background. And it just kind of adds to the story of it. You know, it may not be the actual story of that photo, but it's something that the viewer can kind of you know, read into yeah. it. Um, and so that's something that I actively search for. Now, I, I always ask myself when I'm finding a subject, you know, what story does this have to tell? Um, and uh, on my spring backpacking tree of trip, I found this really cool uh, cottonwood tree that's kind of all kind of gnarled up, but, you know, it's, it's thriving in this wash up against this really nice sandstone uh, cliff in the background and just like the story of that tree. So that's something I always have in my mind, which I think is, is pretty powerful for photography. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things I'm curious about and that I personally struggle with is when you see a story like that, that like it, obviously there's a, there's a story you saw and it, and it, and it caused you to want to take a picture of it and share it. Um, Mm -hmm. do you also share with your fans and your audience or if, like, let's say you had printed that and put it in a gallery, like, would you caption it with that story or would you leave that up to interpretation for the viewer? I, what I've done is I, I basically title the photo something that draws attention to it. But then I think beyond that, you kind of leave it up to the viewer. So in the the first photo I mentioned about the pine trees and the wash, the two of them kind of embracing each other, I call that photo Mm. embrace, uh, which I think just kind of, paints the picture and then the viewer can kind of, you know, go with it wherever they want as far as the story. Um, so I, I think that's, I, that's the other thing too. Like I, I used to be really horrible at naming <laughs> photos and some of them I still really struggle with, but when you kind of look for a story and that attracts you to the subject, sometimes the title of that photo comes to me actually as I'm shooting it, which is kind of fun. makes that part easier at least. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, it's funny. <clears throat> I have a, picture I shot, uh, back in October in the Bistai Badlands, um, of these two, uh, sandstone pillars that are kind of like rising up out of the desert. And then I had this Mm -hmm. like six hour star trail behind them. And from the vantage point I was shooting at, it kind of looks like ET, like walking away from you, like holding hands with another alien. Yeah, exactly. And like when I shot it, I did not see that at all. But when I posted the photo, all of these people were like, it looks like E.T. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's cool. I didn't see that myself, but thanks for pointing it out to me. But I think it's cool that people can kind of create their own story but just by viewing a, their the photographs that you create. So um, I just wish I was personally better at seeing it uh, while I'm there. <laughs> I, I think it's something that comes with time. Yeah. But there, I mean, not seeing the photograph, though, there was certainly something that attracted you to it. Um, so maybe in some level you kind of saw it, but not really, but you, you knew enough to, you know, there's the composition, that's what you're going for because it had kind of that cool look to it. So, 
but it's something that I, I do actively kind of like it, in my own mind, I kind of ask myself, Hey, you know, what's, what, what's the story of this photo as I'm setting up the composition mm-hmm. that kind of sometimes helps me also figure out how I'm going to set up that composition. Cause sometimes it kind of plays into it. Oh, I think that's an awesome, that's such an awesome, uh, way to compose because when I'm in the field for me personally, anyway, like I I'm thinking so much more of like all these technical aspects of composition, like, like, okay, do I have an anchor? Um, like, is there a leading line? Like, are there patterns? Are there shapes? You know, I'm like trying to think about all those things, but I feel like if it was more of a storytelling thing that I was trying to find, it might create a better composition. Yeah, it helps to give a little bit more purpose to to finding that composition. And that's and, and, and setting up a composition, I, I've I've been kind of thinking about this lately. I think it's like my favorite part about photography because it's it's like a, a problem solving mm-hmm. thing where, you know, you'll see this really cool thing, whether it's a tree or, you know, some sort of like, you know, formation in the desert, but you see it, but then it's this kind of matter of, you know, where is the exact spot to put the camera in order to you know, represent this in the best possible way. And I could be like worn out. I could be tired. I could just be wanting to go back to camp and, you know, and get some sleep. But, you know, it, it just, the moment I see that cool subject, um, it kind of, I kind of spring into sort of a different mindset of, I know there's something here, you know, I just got to sort of troubleshoot this and try to find this, but I know that there's a solution and, and usually there is. Um, so it's, it's kind of cool. I yeah. I'm, you're better than me, man. Cause, uh, so often I come into a scene and I, you know, I, I think to myself like, Oh, this is really cool. But then, uh, I'll take a few shots, maybe even change lenses a few times. And I'm like, I just can't find it. <laughs> so that's cool. I, I like the storytelling thing. I think will be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found it to be pretty valuable. And I think it's one of the things where, you know, if you shoot a photo like that, it has more lasting appeal, especially as kind of the, the memory, you know, your own memory of that sort of, location of that experience fades, but you still have kind of that, that story of, of that photo to kind of fall back on. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool, man. Well, um, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to go to, um, one of the, uh, the Facebook group, uh, for the podcast. Um, one of the people there had a question for you. His name is, uh, Blake Simpson and actually mm-hmm. Sarah Marino was curious as well. And Jackson Frischman, who are, wow. uh, listeners of the podcast. And, um, uh, what they'd like to know is um, they'd like to know a little bit more about your um, your yearly portfolio box sets that you release and sell on your website. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about those. And then um, more specifically, they would like to know um, how do you curate your selection of images? Um, why do you use that format? And what goes into the physical process of making those box sets after the photos have been taken? So the story behind the box sets is it started out um, back probably 2011, probably, I think somewhere in that range. Um, it was getting close to be Christmas time. I had some family and friends. I, I didn't know what to get them as far as a gift. You know, there's always those people in the family where it's kind of like, you know, a, a Chili's gift card isn't, isn't going to cut it. So um, so I decided, hey, I'm going to make a book with uh, with my favorite photos from the year which sounds simple at first, but then you got to kind of go through the photos and figure out which ones you're going to put in there. And I did that for, for quite a few years. Um, and eventually I think it was in 2013 that I was flipping through the book. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of this. I mean, this is a really nice presentation. I should maybe make some of these, make it kind of a limited edition and, and uh, put it up for sale on my website. And I think it was an edition of like 20 
that year or something like that. And they sold through. So then I started seeing potential that, hey, you know, people, people enjoy this. Uh, they want to kind of help support me and what I'm doing. And, um, and it's kind of a fun project to put together. So I did that every year up until 2016. And then the company that was printing the books, they went away. So I was, I was using mypublisher.com. Hmm. And uh, the print quality was really, was really nice. Um, and they, it's a good balance of, of price versus the feature. So it really wasn't like a, a huge run of books, but um, I was doing an edition of 100 um, in 2016. But then once they went away, I was kind of looking at the other various options and you know, self-publishing and having someone else print it would be crazy expensive because it would be a really small edition number. And all the other places that do the print on demand, I just... I wasn't really liking the quality compared to what I was used to. And so I was I was taking a shower one morning after I got the, the news that uh, my publisher was going away. I'm like, I have to find some way of kind of reinventing this. And I figured, you know, I've got this cool, you know, Epson 3880 printer, which does the, you know, um, the pigment prints. And um, I, I've been making some prints on some really nice Honolulu paper. Why don't I just make like a box set that has all of my favorite photos from the year and same sort of thing as the book, except for, you know, people can frame the photos if they want. They can put it on the coffee table. And so I, I set out to do that for 2017. And as of the point that we're recording this, um, there's only four of them left and they'll probably be gone pretty soon. But it's an edition of 125. Um, as far as sort of choosing which photos to put in it, it's actually pretty easy for me because I don't shoot a lot of photos. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I have like which two photos this year do I not want to include in it? So, um, my when I was doing the books, I had to do a minimum of nine photos in order to uh, not have any blank pages in the books. Um, so my goal has always been like you know nine, ten somewhere in there. And uh, so for my 2017 box set, it's a uh, 11 photos over the course of three different trips, and I just kind of picked and choose the ones that kind of stuck with me, the ones that you know I wanted to. To, I wouldn't mind seeing a million prints of them just because, you know, I'm making all these by hand. And if there's that one photo in there I really didn't like, then, I'd, you know, I'd get kind of tired of it. Um, and now uh, for 2018, I'm going to I'm going to do one as well. And when I went on my uh, winter trip to Death Valley, I photographed I photographed 10 different scenes on that trip. And I actually ended up with like eight portfolio shots, oh, wow. which is pretty insane. That feels good. Yeah. Yeah. And, but at the moment when I was on that trip, it, it felt like it was, I felt like I was being incredibly unproductive and not finding subjects. So when I got the film back, I'm like, Hey, actually, this is, this is not bad. This is actually, there's some good stuff in here. Um, and then my spring backpacking trip, which I haven't posted the uh, YouTube videos yet, but uh, I have about three photos from that trip. So, so far for this year, I already have enough to make the box set. So I could be a little more choosy. Um, but yeah, when it comes to choosing the photos, it's just a, a matter of, uh, I don't have a lot of those to begin with. So it <laughs> makes it, makes it easier to decide. Um, as far as the the materials and stuff, um, I use really, really nice paper from Honey Mule. Um, I have to hand trim each sheet of paper. Oh, so wow. they come as, as letter size, I trim them to eight by 10. Um, and then they're printed and then there's a info page and everything in there. But by the time the 2017 book is, or 2017 uh, box set's done, I think I'll have hand trimmed like over 1600 sheets of paper, including the, like a title sheet and other stuff in there as well. So it, it is a lot of work. Yeah. 
but it's kind of a fun, um, kind of a fun project to work on. And uh, now I can actually start working on my 2018 now that the 2017's mostly sold through. Oh, I have lots of follow-up questions. So how, how do you uh, package those? And um, yeah, let's start with that. Like, how do you package them to, to ship them off to people? So um, the box itself that the prints come in, it's a pretty, pretty beefy box. It's an archival box. Um, and that goes in like a plastic sleeve. So it's all clean and protected. But then, um, I use, um, some, basically some brown paper actually I buy from Lowe's. It's made to, to cover floors when people are doing uh, like home improvement projects, like these big rolls of paper. So I basically kind of, um, pa- pack it up in that, uh, recyclable paper. Then, uh, I bought some boxes I can ship international in, and then I have, um, uh, USPS priority boxes for, for domestic. So, um, that part's pretty easy. And I just go on the, on the USPS website and I'm able to like pay for the shipping and everything. So, cause when you got like a bunch of them to ship out, it's obviously, uh, there's some bottlenecks kind of along the way, but it, it's a pretty straightforward process though. It's pretty easy. Okay, cool. So like, how do you, like, what is your process for marketing and getting those out there? And how do you determine how many you want to create? Well, I, for the 2017, I just figured, um, I, I sold a hundred of the books. And so I figured I'd just kick it up a little bit to 125, which has been pretty decent. Um, but the 2018, I'll kick it up a little bit more, um, just because I don't want to sell out too fast, um, after putting all the work into it, um, which, you know, is certainly a, a good problem to have, uh, but uh, as far as marketing and stuff, I really actually don't market it too much. Um, I it's mentioned occasionally on my YouTube channel, but it's I, I'm not a big fan of the hard sell on mm-hmm. things. Um, I just have it available listed on my website, and then at the end of the video, sometimes it's it's mentioned. Um, but uh, and then on um, as it's kind of getting closer to selling through, I'd post uh, like the Instagram story and stuff like that. But I'm not really doing anything fancy on that. So I'm, I'm not really good at marketing. I'll put it that way. But, <laughs> yeah. Most of us aren't, but, you know, it, it all seems to work. Yeah. I'd rather be the one taking the pictures, but I think that's true for, a Oh, lot of for sure. Um, so, so people, I, I mean, do you have like a email list that you send it out to like, Hey, I'm doing another box set or. I just w- within the past year, I, I mean, past year, within the past week, time flies, uh, within the past week, I actually, I just started creating, um, uh, an email list, um, when I went on my winter trip, um, I went on the trip with, uh, Thomas Heaton oh, and he was okay. telling me about how, you know, the, the mailing list is, it's a good thing to have. So I'm like, all right, I should probably do that. Um, so I, but yeah, I, I, I went ahead and just, uh, uh, created it and, uh, but I, I don't know, I'm, I, I plan on doing some sort of newsletter thing or, or something like that. But, uh, but I, I think basically I can kind of mentioning it on the YouTube channel, um, from time to time, I think that's, that's been sufficient so far yeah i think a mailing list is a great idea but i'm with you man like marketing is so painful i i I don't i just i don't i feel like most of the photographers i know like talking about ourselves and marketing our own stuff is like painful (laughs) it it really it really is um and i mean i i don't want it to ever seem like i'm trying to sell anything. Um, I, I'd rather people just be 
think it's really awesome and to, you know, appreciate the work and to be, you know, happy to, to support, um, but yeah, I, I'd make a horrible car salesman. I'll tell you that. <laughs> me too, <Yeah>. man. Me too. <laughs> I'd be like, you should go to that other lot down the street. They got better cars over there. Much better cars. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I don't know how many times people have reached out to me um, asking like if I did like workshops or, you know, stuff like that. And I'm always like, I, I really don't want to do workshops. So here's a couple of people I would recommend. <laughs> yeah. I know I'm just throwing money out the window, but. But that's good though, because it means that, you know, if, if you give them a solid reference and if they have something else they need, they'll probably come back to you for something else. So, you know, that's, you know, a a reference can also be a really good thing. For sure. For sure. (laughs) Well, uh, let's shift gears again. And, um, one of the topics that seems to be, um, emerging and getting a lot of traction and discussion on social media and, and whatnot is the idea of um, sharing location information for landscape f- photography. And mm-hmm. um, it's not, it's probably not a secret that um, in past episodes we've talked a lot about it. And uh, my personal opinion is uh, pretty widely known. But, uh, you know, I recently listened to another podcast. Um, uh, it's the candid frame and he was interviewing um uh mm-hmm. anyway he was talking about this new app he created where basically uh you put in your gps coordinates it's like tied to your phone and then it tells you like here are the closest locations of things that you can shoot nearby and it's all based based on users giving giving them uh basically submitting like you could be in Zion and be like, here's a cool scene I know about in Zion. You should check it out. And, uh, you know, his thought was like, it's a great tool for people to use and it helps people learn. And it's about helping the community and like listening to the podcast. Like all I could think of was like, Oh my God, you just released people that don't know the impact they're having on those locations. Mm -hmm. And in 10 years, those locations are going to be completely ruined. Oh, for sure. So what is your thoughts? <laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, I, I don't tell where I am. Um, I mean, uh, for those of you that, that don't know, I, I have a YouTube channel, so I, I post video journals when I go in the, into the field to, you know, go on some of these like backpacking trips and stuff. And there's areas I go to that are really well known. So I'll say you know where I am there, but if I'm going anywhere where it's a little off the beaten path, I will not say where I am and I will even sometimes be a little bit misleading about where I am because I really don't want to be the person that puts a particular area on the map. Even if it's, um, even if it's an area that's known for other people, there's a lot of areas that aren't really known to photographers. Um, because there is a lot of stuff that can happen. A lot of damage can happen. And and sometimes people think that, Oh, it's going to be those, you know, you know, the, 5% 5% of people that are going to leave trash and do all that, that are going to ruin it. And, and I think it's actually more so they're going to be the, the people that are, they have good intentions, but just these areas just can't take that kind of foot traffic. Um, as a, as a good example, uh, on the recent backpacking trip I went on, um, I went to a Canyon that I visited for the first time last year. And, and last year I was very careful not to mention where I was. Um, and I was actually pretty proud of the fact that when I posted those videos, 
in all the comments and the emails and stuff, not a single person actually asked me, hey, where is that location? Um, so I was really, really happy about that because that was probably a lot more common a little while back. Um, and I made a video kind of on that topic, I think it was back in 2013. And a lot of people left angry comments saying, hey, you know, you know, you, you basically thinking that they're kind of entitled to that information. Um, when in reality, I, I think it's, you know, if you work to find an area on your own, if it's not just served up on a platter, you're going to respect it so much more. And sometimes people will say, well, that, you know, the desert, you know, it's, it's just a wasteland. It could take, you know, a lot of people and foot traffic and stuff. But when, um, when I went on the backpacking trip last year, um, there's this one really cool tree that I photographed and there's kind of a, a game trail. I was kind of walking along and there's this one really cool tree. I set up for a photo of it. I had to walk probably about, I don't know, like five or six feet up, kind of a sandy slope with just a little tiny bit of veg- vegetation in there, like some wildflowers and some grasses and stuff. Um, but I have to go kind of back and forth to my camera to, you know, get film holders, get lenses. So um, it, it put a little bit of wear and tear on that area. But when I revisited that same canyon um, on my trip this year, I walked by that tree and it's been a year since I've been there but I could still see where I was standing and I was trying to be kind of careful, but that's the impact impact of just, you know, one person on an area that can be relatively fragile. So when people are, you know, posting information, um, I, I'm not a big fan of it, but I have seen a move towards people kind of holding some of these locations a little bit closer to the chest. Um, and that it's sort of being frowned on a little bit more as far as, you know, revealing some of these locations because we do have to do what we can to to protect these areas because areas can get loved to death and that's that's not a good thing. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I apologize. It was actually the Jim Harmer episode of uh, the Candid Frame. I misquoted that, but uh, but yeah, um, I just feel, I feel like people just haven't been around long enough to see the impact that we have on these locations and you know, and what's interesting is I think that. Like me personally, I shoot a lot in the mountains and the forests here in Colorado, and I have a really good understanding of what my impact has on those areas. But when it comes to deserts, like I'm pretty, I'm pretty ignorant and, na- and naive about like what's right and wrong in terms of leave no trace. And like, you know, like for all I know, everything I've ever done in the desert has a catastrophic impact. I just don't know because like that's not, I don't, I have not educated myself on what it is I need to be careful about. And I think it's cool that you've, I mean, sad, but also cool that you notice, like even just yourself, you, you had an impact on a, on a location that was visible. Like you could still see where you were at. Yeah. And, and I was amazed by that. Cause I mean, these are areas that get like some crazy, like monsoonal rain during the summer and there's snow and, and, and the, the vegetation hadn't really kind of come back in that area. I don't know if I had like pushed some of the seeds kind of too far into the sand or if they had been exposed and blew away. But the, the plants that – I wasn't trampling plants when I was there, but the plants didn't grow in the areas where I had walked. Um, and there's other stuff too. Like in, in the desert, there's the um, cryptobiotic soil, uh, which that's really bad stuff to walk on because it, um, it takes a long time for it to build up. I think it's like mosses and stuff that are dormant mm-hmm. that are in there and it holds together so you don't have erosion. Um, but the other thing too, the other, fl- the other side of the coin when it comes to, um, you know, revealing locations and stuff like that is that, you know, it's, 
a lot more rewarding if you kind of find these areas on your own. Um, even, even if it's not the exact area that someone else is photographing, but if you kind of find your own areas, but I think the difficulty these days is that people have a very small amount of time when they go out on these trips. So they just want to kind of hit those hot spots. They don't have time to explore. So they, you know, they, they, they would have a hard time, you know, being able to kind of get off the beaten path and stuff. But that being said, yeah, it's, it, I don't think that information really should be out there because once it's out there, there's no taking it back. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I've heard a couple of counter arguments. Um, like I think outdoor magazine did an article about this same topic a couple of weeks ago. And I read the comments, you know, which you never should do, but I read the comments on yeah. the website or their social media thing. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of people were saying like, that it's like elitism, like that, you know, like you're somehow more special than someone else because you won't tell people where a place is. And I just feel like those people don't understand. Like it, it's nothing about being elitist or not wanting to be helpful. I think we all deep down want to be helpful to other people. But at, in the end, I think, you know, we want to see these places last forever, you know, not just not yeah. a couple of trips there, you know. And I think the only way for you to, to to be able to see your impact is to see case studies of actual examples of places that used to be completely unknown and now get a lot of traffic and see kind of like the before and after. I think I think that would I think that would be alarming to some people. It would, and and I've heard the sort of the elitism um, thing thrown about as well, and and I and I understand that. I mean, when I was first kind of getting into photography, I, I I kind of understood that, and I felt like you know these photographers were, you know, not saying where the photos were shot because they're trying to be maybe the only one to photograph that, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, but I I didn't really understand sort of the the impact of it. But now once you kind of been at it for a while and you kind of see how things work a little bit more, you kind of understand the the importance on protecting some of these areas um, so that they aren't, you know, loved to death because it's, it, it is kind of sad what can happen. Oh, for sure. I mean, I've, I've seen it firsthand in Colorado, like certain locations that only a couple of people have shot at. And then someone comes around and they publish a guide on the internet yeah. and it has that location. And then you go there couple years later and it's completely transformed yeah. so it's it's real man it's it's not like some i don't know it's not like we're just making this stuff up like these this has an impact i think yeah and that's why i appreciate with you know all the various episodes i've listened to for your podcast of the the conversations that you've had and uh like every time you bring it up i'd be like yeah yeah you know that's it's good stuff uh so <laughs> so you, you might think it's repetitive but I, I think it's it's something that has to be repetitive so that people can can really get the message and hear all the different sort of takes and different views on the subject. But I'm, I'm glad that that conversation exists. Right on, dude. Well, thanks so much. Um, I appreciate that because um, I know there's a there's a growing number of us that that care about it, and and I think it's kind of our responsibility to keep to keep sounding the alarm. You know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. As annoying as it might be for other people. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, well, let's shift gears again. I have, you know, two more questions for you. Um, the first question I have is, uh, you know, based on the name of the podcast, F stop, collaborate and listen, what advice would you have for other photographers? 
I think it really comes down to something that's really simple, which is to follow your own curiosity. Um, whenever I am out in the field and I'm kind of looking for something to photograph, whether I'm kind of wandering through a wash somewhere or, or wherever, I'm always just kind of stopping, looking around and trying to find something. And ultimately something might catch my eye, which kind of leads to something else and something else. But it's by following the sense of curiosity that I've been able to kind of find subjects that otherwise I might not have noticed. Um, like there was a, a time when I was in, in Zion and it had rained a little bit overnight during one of my fall trips. And I was walking along the wash and I saw some kind of cool fallen leaves kind of on the ground. And then I noticed that there was some cool droplets kind of in the mud where these big water drops from the leaves above are kind of impacting. It created this really cool pattern. But it's just because I was kind of curious about everything going on that I noticed that where otherwise I may have just walked right past it. And actually I did walk past it. I walked past it like two or three times until I finally kind of stopped and saw it. But also I think when you follow your own curiosity, it helps you to avoid some of the pressures of social media. And so you're not just trying to take photos in a particular style because it's what's popular, but you're, you're following your own curiosity. You're finding your own subjects because it's something that you actually care about and you'll put more effort into, you know, the composition and, and the lighting and everything that kind of goes into that photo. Um, Another thing too, kind of along that same note, when it comes to collaboration, um, I kind of, when I was getting a little bit more serious about landscape photography, I actually avoided looking at the work of a lot of other photographers because I didn't really want to be influenced by what they were doing. And so I would like, I remember it was, I don't remember what year it was, but it, it was quite a ways after Mark Adamus, you know, earned his reputation as being an awesome photographer. Finally, I actually looked at his website and looked at the work he had done um, because I was intentionally avoiding looking at all that work um, <laughs> until I kind of felt like I finally kind of created a style of my own and then I wouldn't be influenced it. But now I can actually, you know, look at the work and really appreciate what these people have done and then kind of reach out to them and, and talk to them and kind of, you know, share information and ideas and stuff. So I think that's where the collaboration comes in handy, but Biggest thing is, I think, follow your own curiosity and it'll, it'll take you on a pretty cool path. Oh, for sure. I, th I think that's killer advice. It's funny you brought up the the topic of um, looking at other people's work because I've talked to Miles Morgan kind of has the opposite view. Like he, he uh, looks at a lot of people's work and he calls it active viewing. And mm -hmm. um, I, I kind of early on took that approach myself, but um, more recently when I spoke, spoke with Sarah Marino, she was telling me kind of the opposite view of that. And I kind of find myself struggling because, um, I I'm kind of leaning more towards like not looking at other people's stuff. Cause, um, I feel like it does have an influence on what you're looking to accomplish instead of, mm -hmm. instead of trying to follow your own voice or establish your own voice, um, so I'm, I'm kind of leaning more towards that myself lately. Yeah. And I, I think it's a matter of kind of finding a, a balance, sure. you know, finding that right balance. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it, it's a tricky thing, but I mean, yeah, it, it was kind of weird. I, I had this like early arms is like, I don't want to look at all these other <laughs> photographers work. I don't want to influence me, but now I, I love looking at other people's work because it really, I can learn from what they've done and kind of, it, it's kind of cool. Yeah, and I was, I was going to say, uh, a lot of times I don't like looking at other people's work because it reminds me of like how bad my work is. 
there, there's always, you know, there, you know, eh, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but I have to remind myself it's not a competition. So it's not. It's not exactly. Well, cool, man. Uh, so who who are some people that uh, you would really like to hear on the podcast that we haven't had on yet? So I think it'd be awesome if you can get them to have uh, Thomas Heaton on. Okay. Um, he's, he's a really cool guy. Um, I had the, uh, I, I had the pleasure of, uh, going on, uh, uh, my winter trip along with him. And, uh, so it was kind of cool to see things from his perspective, but, uh, but he's really cool. Um, I'd also say, uh, Simon Baxter, who's also from the UK. Um, he does these amazing kind of woodland, uh, scenes with these really, really cool trees with lots of character, kind of the storytelling sort of photos, which is really nice. Um, Alex Burke is a large format photographer, um, and he's uh, he's got some really really beautiful work, um, live backpacking stuff as well, um, and also uh, Michael Strickland. Um, he's uh, he also shoots large format, um, really really cool guy. Um, they're all a, a really really fine fine group of people. I love to hear what they have to say. Cool. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I've only heard of one of the four of those. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Look him up. I think you'll be really impressed. That's been one of the funnest things about this podcast is like, it's, a, it's introduced me to so many amazing artists. Um, it's been really fun to hear what, who other people appreciate out there in the community. Yeah. It's, I gotta say it's, it's, it's been a blast listening to, it. I think you've got something really cool going on here. Cool, man. Well, so what do you got coming up? And, um, Tell me, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about what's going on for you over on YouTube. Yeah. So I have a YouTube channel where I basically share the uh, experience of going on my landscape photography trips. Um, I've been doing that forever since like 2009. Um, but it's, it's always been kind of a little bit of a niche thing since I shoot film. And sometimes people think that they can't relate to it for whatever reason, because it's, it's film as opposed to digital. <laughs> Um, but I don't, I don't get technical on any of this stuff. It's, it's really just the matter of, you know, going out, finding subjects, kind of exploring and um, kind of, like I said earlier, kind of like following that sense of curiosity and, and looking for subjects. Um, so I, I post daily, uh, I call, I call them video journals. Everyone else in the world calls them vlogs, but right. I call them video journals, but uh, I, I post daily video journals um, of the trips and uh I'm not sure when this episode will air, but uh, it'll be next week, next Wednesday. Next so. week, so it'll probably be another couple of weeks or so after that. They'll start posting the video journals for my spring trip. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it'd be awesome if you guys were to subscribe, check it out, and and tell me what you think. That's cool, man. Yeah, it's funny. I um, I do. I I think video vlogging or vlogging or video journaling. I think that's so much smarter than what I do. <laughs> I I take all the photos I do from a trip. And then like, I write like a really long blog post about like all the minutia and detail just to like, so that when I'm like 80 years old, I can read back and like show it to my grandkids. But it's so, but it's not nearly as like accessible to people that have much shorter attention spans. <laughs> True. But I think you can cover things more in depth with written. And actually the only reason I started doing the video stuff is that I just would have like major writer's block. I'd like, I'd have a hard time with it. So at a certain point, and it started as a, as a written blog, but at a certain point I'm like, I'm just going to record video clips and throw it together. And I was, at, there's no one else was really doing that at the time. Now it's, it's a lot more common. Um, 
and 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 I, I should also say that I call them video journals because I I approach the videos kind of like a written journal, um, and it really is for like the purpose that that you mentioned. It's actually videos that I create so that I can look back at them, kind of like a way a written journal is, um, as opposed to creating it for entertainment. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. you know, to, to try to get all the you know clickbait views and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> you'll you'll never believe the ten things I learned while hiking with a large format mm-hmm. camera. Yeah, yeah. You're you're not going to see any of that. You'll just see a lot of like oh, I'm lonely, you know, stuff like that. But you know, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> well, right on, Ben. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule, and uh, I look forward to um, seeing more of your work uh, in the coming months. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks to Ben for taking time to visit with us. Uh, To find out more about Ben and see more of his work, visit his website at www.benhorn.com. You'll find links to topics we discussed and more in the show notes on my blog at www.mattpainphotography.com. And uh, you can support us by writing a review about the podcast in the iTunes store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, which I'm pretty sure that's how most of you found the podcast, Uh, It helps others discover the podcast as well. Thanks to Brad Mangus for his amazing five-star review. You should go read it. It was really (laughs) awesome. Um, You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Um, For as little as a dollar, you can help pay for the production costs of the podcast, help us improve the podcast. And uh, $5 a month and higher, you gain access to some sweet bonus episodes. And uh, for people that have been uh, helping out for a while, I just sent them t-shirts just for the fun of it. So um, this week on Patreon, Ben and I discuss composition, which I think we all can get something out of. Um, Thanks to our newest patrons, uh, Suzanne uh, Mathia. Richard Bald and Dan Hawk, you guys are awesome. I really appreciate it. It means so much um, that you believe in the podcast and are wanting to support us. Um, feel free to drop me a line about the podcast, either suggestions, ideas, anything. Uh, check me out on my website, www.mattpainphotography.com, or you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram as Photo. Or on Facebook as Matt Payne Photography. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the next episode.